In our journey through the book of Hebrews, we're on Hebrews chapter 11, which is, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. I mean, it's all good, right? It's, it's all the Bible, it's all the Word of God, uh, but every once in a while you come to one of these chapters, these passages that is, is the, you know, one of the, the jewels in the entire Bible, and Hebrews 11 is one of those. So as I was facing this this week and thinking, all right, I'm going to preach Hebrews 11 this week, I've got a how do I do justice to this incredible passage? You know, and it was kind of paralyzing for me to think, I've got to preach this. Pa- how can I do this? I just can't do it. And so I'm kind of freezing a little bit. And then I realized, you know what? I can't do justice to it. And then I relaxed and I wrote my sermon. So you're not going to get the definitive treatment of Hebrews 11 this morning. Um, I don't know if there is one of those. Uh, but we're just going to look at it together. We're going to try to see what it says. We'll let it speak for itself as much as possible. Uh, and, I, and I just want to try to answer two questions as we look at Hebrews 11 this morning. Uh, what is faith and how do I get it? What is faith and how do I get it? And what we're going to do, a little bit different this morning, I'm going to read through a little bit at a time. We'll go through each chunk. I'll talk a little bit about the chunk, then we'll read the next section. So I'm not going to read the whole thing at once first. We'll just walk through it together bit by bit. So I want to start, if you've got your Bibles, flip to Hebrews chapter 11, and then actually back up a couple verses. I want to start at the end of chapter 10 and read these first few verses for context. So Hebrews 10, verses 39, and then into chapter 11. Verse 39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I'm just going to stop there for a second. Um, This book, this book of Hebrews, has reminded us time after time uh, what the Bible clearly teaches in lots of places, namely that there are two paths in life. There are two paths. One path is to reject God to reject Jesus, to walk away from him, to never believe him in the first place. And if you do that, if you walk away from God, if you reject him, then you face destruction. You fall into the hands of living God. This is what we talked about last week in the the previous passage. The other path, though, is to accept Jesus, to follow after him, to believe in him, to have faith. And if you have faith, you have great reward. This is what verse 39 was telling us. If we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this is, a, this is a real emphasis in Hebrews, an emphasis in the Bible, that there's two paths. One path is to not have faith and be destroyed. The other path is to have faith and receive great reward, eternal life. So the stakes are really high, right? Do you want to be destroyed or do you want to have eternal life? And the difference between those two paths is faith. There's those who are destroyed or those who don't have faith, those who have a great reward are those who have faith. So it's a really important question to ask. What does it mean to have faith? What's it mean to have faith? So, so we need to know what faith is. And to answer that question, God gives us this glorious chapter, this wonderful chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, to say, do you want to know what faith is? Let me tell you what faith is. It's, this is God saying, this is what I mean when I say you need to have faith. So the first question that we need to ask is, what is faith? And and verse 1 in chapter 11 tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here's my paraphrase, uh, what, I, what I think he's saying there. He's saying faith is the conviction that what God has said is true. Faith is the conviction that what God has said is true. So what is faith? Faith is conviction. It's conviction. Uh, there's the two phrases here in this first verse where it says the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Uh, let me give you a list of words. You might, you might have some different words in your translation if you're reading that, okay? So some of the words that are used there, uh, assurance is also translated substance, reality, confidence, guarantee. Conviction is also translated evidence or proof or certainty. So these words, they remind us that the word faith, as the Bible uses it, is different than the way that we can use it sometimes. A lot like the word hope, and we've talked about this before. A lot of times when we say the word hope, like I hope that something happens, we're talking about wishful thinking, like wouldn't it be nice? So we'll say something like, I hope the Cubs win the World Series this year. Okay, be nice, probably not going to happen. But we hope, we hope for it. But that's not what the Bible means when the Bible says hope, right? The Bible, when it says hope, we have a hope. It means we have an anchor. We have something that's certain and secure. It's going to happen. So hope, it's different when the Bible says it than what we usually mean. And faith can be the same thing. We can always, often say, we use that word faith to describe wishful thinking. Like something bad happens and we'll just say, I just have faith that everything's going to work out fine. Now, what people mean a lot of times when they say that is, is really, I don't even want to think about things not working out fine, so I'm just going to hope, I'm just going to have this wishful thinking that things are going to work out okay. I have no basis for that, but I just got to have faith, I got to trust that it's going to work out fine because I couldn't face it not working out fine. It's just wishful thinking. But faith is not just a blind hope that maybe some things will work out good. Faith, like hope, has a foundation. Real biblical faith, saving faith, is certainty, it's confidence, it's assurance, it's conviction, it's evidence. Specifically, it's conviction that what God has said is true. In verse 1, it says it's the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. Now, those things have already been defined for us. You know, even back in chapter 10, verse 34, he says uh, that, that we know that we have a better possession and an abiding one, that there's a great reward ahead of us. This thing we're hoping for, this thing we're convicted of, is that there is a future for us that God has promised eternal life. That God has said, for all who put their faith in Jesus, you have eternal life. There is a great rest waiting for us. And even though we haven't seen it yet, we believe that it's true because God has promised it. So that's faith. It's the conviction that what God has said is true. Not just wishful thinking, but a real conviction. It, it's like what the faith that we demonstrate every time that we use cash. Okay? So let me get your attention here. I have a $50 bill. I'm not going to give it to the person who takes the best sermon notes this morning. It's just a demonstration. This is a, I got this uh, a couple weeks ago as a present. And when I got this, uh, this piece of paper, I didn't, uh, I didn't wonder whether or not this piece of paper was going to be worth anything. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have some wishful thinking saying, well, wouldn't it be nice if I took this to a store 
And I gave it to a clerk, and, and they gave me $50 worth of stuff in exchange for this piece of paper. I mean, that'd be, that'd be cool. It, it wasn't wishful thinking. I didn't ever stop and wonder, like, um, you know, just because this has the number 50 on it, and, uh, um, and it, you know, it's this nice little piece of paper, maybe they'll give me something for it. There, there, was no, uh, there was no wishful thinking in relation to this. When I got this cash, I did what you do, and I just had faith, a certainty that when I take this green piece of paper with the number 50 and Ulysses S. Grant into a store, they're going to give me an equivalent uh, worth of $50 of stuff. Now why? Why do I have that faith? Why that certainty? Because the United States government has spoken. And it says right there in little print, this note is legal tender for all debts public and private. Because the U.S. government has spoken and said this piece of paper has worth. Now I have faith. I have confidence. And you have faith. If I gave this to you, you would say, thank you very much. Because you believe that it has value. Because a person with authority has spoken value into it. Faith is like that. Real biblical faith is like that. Not just wishful thinking like, I hope this turns out well. But a confidence, a certainty that because God has spoken. Because he has said this is true and it will happen We believe it. The rest of this chapter then fleshes out what that faith looks like. So let's keep reading. Next couple verses, verses 4 through 6. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, but he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what we see about faith in these verses is that faith is what pleases God. This is the second big point. So faith is it's a conviction, and it's also what pleases God. Now, all that the author of Hebrews is doing as he goes through this chapter is he's just marching through the Bible saying, look at this person, they've got faith. Look at this person, they've got faith. Look at this person, they've got faith. Starting with Abel and walking all the way along. Now, Cain and Abel, that, that are referenced here in verse 4, uh, they were brothers. You meet them in Genesis chapter 4. And they both bring a sacrifice to God, and God accepts Abel's, but he doesn't accept Cain's. He's pleased with Abel, he's not pleased with Cain, and Cain gets so upset about it that he kills his brother. Now, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice? Because Abel's was offered with faith. He says that's why it was pleasing to God, because it was, it was, it was given by faith. Enoch shows up in Genesis chapter 5. He's actually in a genealogy. That's one of the sections that we skip, so you might miss his story. But if you read Genesis 5, you can read this genealogy. It talks about all these people. So-and-so had, uh, had a son after so many years, and, and then uh, he died. And then so-and-so had a son, and he lived so many years, and then he died. And then he, and then he had a son, and, and, and he lived so many years, and then he died. And then it comes to Enoch. And for Enoch, it says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So this whole genealogy, you've got this repetition, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then you get to Enoch, and it just says God took him because he walked with God. He didn't die. Enoch is one of two people in recorded history that did not 
die. God just took him. And that's evidence, Hebrews says, of God being pleased with him, and he was pleased with him because he had faith. That's the principle given in verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and rewards those who seek him. See, this is a, it's a really simple truth. We try so hard to get around it and come up with some other way to please God, but God says what pleases him is having faith. What God is pleased with is us believing that what he has said is true. That's what makes him happy. But we think, no, 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 what makes God happy is when, when we do really good things. That's what pleases God. If I really want to please God, then I've got to impress him by doing good things, certainly more good things than bad things. That's what will make God happy. And this is so prevalent, we, everybody believes this. Not everybody's really blatant about saying it, but um, the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, he, he was really obvious than most people on this one. He had an interview with the New York Times not too long ago. Uh, and in it, um, he was really obvious about his, his thinking about what pleases God. Uh, the interviewer said, uh, pointing to Bloomberg's work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, Bloomberg said with a grin, quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, not many people are that bold about it. But that's what we think. We think what pleases God is doing good things. Right? For Bloomberg, it was gun control and banning big sodas and stopping people from smoking in bars. I've done that. That means that I'm going to get in if there's a God because I'm clearly pleasing him with the work that I'm doing. And, and we think, that's what pleases God, the work that I'm doing. That's what makes God happy with me. And God says, no, no, no. What makes me happy with you, what pleases me is faith. That's why Abel was accepted. That's why Enoch was accepted. Faith, the conviction that what God has said is true, that's what pleases God. But of course, if you have that belief, if you really believe that what God has said is true, then it changes the way you live. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. Faith changes how we live now in light of the future. Faith changes how we live now in light of the future. Look at verses 7 through 12. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that was... Uh, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to the la- live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of hi- with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she, was considered him who f- since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. What we're supposed to see in these little references to the biblical stories is that faith changes the way that you live now in light of the future. So you've got Noah. And God comes up to Noah and he says, I'm going to flood the earth and you need to build an ark. So faith for Noah means the conviction that what God has said is true. God really is going to flood the earth with a flood. He's really going to save it by me building an ark. And so Noah, because he had faith, did something. 
He acted in the present because of the belief that what God said about the future was true. You've got Abraham. God shows up to Abraham and he says, go to a land that you have never been to before. Leave your family. Leave everything that you know. I'm going to give you that land as an inheritance. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And so for Abraham, faith meant believing what God said about the future was true, that that really was going to happen. And since he believed that that was true in the future, it changed the way he lived now. He went. And he spent the rest of his life living in tents, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Oh, you got Abraham and Sarah. God says to them, I'm going to give you a child. He's 100 years old. She's 90 years old. Okay, these people are older than anybody here. Never had a baby. She's never had a baby. She's been barren her whole life. It says quite blatantly, their bodies are as good as dead in terms of having children. But God says, I'm going to give you a child. That's a promise for the future. And for them, faith meant believing that promise and taking action now to to see if that would happen. And God did. All these people have specific promises of God. And faith for them means believing those promises and acting now in line with those promises for the future. But in addition to those specific promises, they also have the general promise, the same promise we all share. And that's what comes up in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay, this is the connection point for us. Because I don't don't think that any of us has gotten a specific promise from God that says, you need to build an ark, and if you do, then I'll save the world through you. Anybody? Nope. Okay, probably don't want to raise your hand anyway. If you, if you mean, we can talk privately if you've had that, had that promise from God. But, but I don't think we've gotten that promise from God or a specific promise from God that says you are going to have a baby even though you're 100 years old. Or the promise from God that says I'm going to give you this particular land and if you just go there, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Right? Those are specific promises given to specific people in biblical history. But we have a promise that we share with them. God has promised us, like he promised them, a homeland. God has promised us a better country. He's promised us a heavenly city. And we share that promise with Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. Now for them, what it meant to have that heavenly homeland meant that their lives now were radically changed. Since God had said, this world is not your home, and they believed God, then they lived as if this world was not their home. And that's what it means for us too. Because God has said to us, just like he said to them, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. We have another homeland. We have a heavenly city. God has said this world is not our home, so faith for us means believing that and then really living like this world is not our home. Really living like ultimately we're going to live forever in heaven, an eternal life with God. That, and then when Jesus returns, that we're going to live in resurrected bodies on a new heaven and a new earth. Like that's the future 
That's the promise. That's what God has said is going to happen. Now, do we believe it? Because if we believe it, then we will live differently now. For example, we will think totally differently from the world about retirement. Totally different. Because for the world, for many people, retirement is the finish line. That is heaven. Right? The whole goal of life is to retire comfortably. So let's just live with that finish line, 65 or whatever it is. And, 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 and when that gets there, then I'll get my rest. And so if we think about that, then, then our priorities reflect that belief. So we'll work as much now as we can, save as much now as we can, and then when 65 rolls around, we'll enjoy it then as much as we can. And in our culture, we call that long-range planning. But it's really short-range planning. It's really short-range planning. Because the point of life isn't to have a wonderful couple of decades after 65. The point of life is to have a wonderful eternity with God. So we want to be structuring our lives now, our finances now, our priorities now, to reflect that fact that the most important thing is to store up treasure in heaven. That we want to use our money and our effort now uh, in all of our working years and all of our retired years to glorify God. To love people as much as we can. To love God as much as we can. And not obsess about our own comfort or what trips we might take when we get to be a certain age. It affects how we live now. The, the examples continue. This is why it's such a rich chapter. We can't talk about everything, but, but verse 17, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his son, each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So you get Abraham again. After Isaac was grown a little bit, God said, I want you to sacrifice him to me. It's a really tough command. How do you reconcile that with God's promise that Isaac would be the one through whom blessing would come to the world? But Abraham believed God. He believed God so much that it seems like he said, I don't know how this is all going to work out. Maybe God will raise him from the dead. I don't know. But God said he's the promised child. God says I need to sacrifice him. I've got to believe God. And when God saw his faith, he spared Isaac's life. Then Isaac, Jacob, Joseph get in the game, each one at the end of their lives looking forward to what God's going to do and blessing their children, saying this is going to happen. Joseph looked forward to the Exodus and he said, we're going to get out. When we do, take my bones. And they do get out. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down 
after they'd been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Those few verses, that's a whirlwind tour of Exodus through Joshua. But you've got Moses giving up a, a life of comfort and temporary reward as a prince of Egypt because he believed God's promise was a better reward. You've got people putting blood on their doorposts because God said, if you do that, your firstborn won't die. You've got people walking through walls of water in the Red Sea because God said, I'll keep you safe. You've got people defeating the city of Jericho, not with normal siege tactics, but just by walking around it for seven days until the walls fall down because God said, that's how you're going to defeat the city. And you've got Rahab, this prostitute, being spared and joining into the people of God, not because she reformed her ways and did enough good things now that God accepted her, but because she had faith and believed that when God said he was going to give the land to the Israelites, that it was true. And so she helped them. Now all this, the whole point of all this is to show us what faith is. Faith is the conviction that what God has said is true. If God says, walk around the city and I'll make the walls fall down, you believe it. And then you act. It's a conviction that creates a response. We act as if it's true now. And when we do that, that's what pleases God. All right, now, I made a decision this morning to skip point four. We're going to go over that next week. It's just too much. You're welcome. We'll come back next week, and we'll hit that one. But what I want you to do, so we're going to skip verses 32 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to focus on that next week. But I want you to jump down to chapter 12 and just look at a couple verses here. Because we've got to talk about how do we get faith. Okay, we talked about this faith. like It's this conviction, the, a belief that what God has said is true. It's what pleases God, so we want to have it. And it also means that we believe it enough that we live it out now. Okay, so, so we need it. It's important. Without faith, we have no hope. Faith is what we get our reward because we have faith. So how do we get that faith? How do we get there? Um, before we look at the answer in Scripture, I just want to point out the wrong answer. Uh, the wrong answer is to look inside yourself and just say, I've got to have more faith. Okay, that's the wrong approach. That's where we go all the time. I don't have enough faith. We beat ourselves up. I don't have enough faith. How can I get more faith? I just have more faith. Come on, faith. We just try to will it into existence. That's not how we go about the quest for faith in in the rest of life. Why should it be the same? Why should it be any different for for how we go about the quest of faith in a Christian life? You know what I mean? So, for example, um, if I were to go skydiving, and I never will, but if I were to go skydiving, and you're going to try to convince me to do it, you would need to increase my faith. You have to increase my faith in skydiving. Uh, and it would be a bad move for you to just to say, oh, come on, just have more faith. You'll be fine. Because I could sit there forever in, in my room and just kind of trying to will myself into a position of faith to, to trust that skydiving is safe. And it's never going to happen. Okay, so, so what would be a better approach not that this one would work, but what would be a better approach to try to convince me? You would need to show me the faithfulness of the skydiving company. 
Right? Don't, don't tell me to have more faith myself, just like I could just will it together. You need to point me to the, the faithfulness of the people I'd have to trust with my faith. So you would need to, uh, to show me how over the last you know, 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, no one's ever died jumping out of planes with this company. You know, and you, and you need to show me um, you know, glowing testimonials of people who have trusted this particular company and, and had a great time and survived doing the skydiving thing. Um, and I'd probably want to see uh, the maintenance records for the airplane and the harnesses. Um, and I'd like to meet the guy that I'd be jumping with tandem. I'd like to see pictures of his young children so that I would know that he has a reason to have the jump. Right? So I would want evidence. Is the more evidence that you can show me, the more things that you can say about the faithfulness of the particular people doing it would engender in me faith. Right? I wouldn't force it myself, but it's looking at the people I'm trusting and saying, are they faithful? Are they faithful? And the more I could believe the faithfulness of them, the more the faith would come for me. Right? That's how we get faith in God. It's not by working ourselves to say more and more how much faith I need. I've got to come up with faith. I've got to trust God. What a failure I am that I don't have any faith. The way we get faith in God is by taking our eyes off ourselves and looking at his faithfulness. Here's how it puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to look at Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. How do you get faith? You stop looking at yourself. You're not faithful. We're never supposed to put faith in ourselves. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your weak faith and start looking at Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. So how do I know that God is faithful? How do I know that he's going to do what he promised? Because he always has. That's the point of Hebrews 11. As we, we look at the history of Scripture and how God has worked throughout generations, and we see God made a promise to Adam and Eve, and he made a promise to Noah, and a promise to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to David, and to Samuel, and he made promises to all these people that he would save the world. And he did it. He promised that Jesus would come, and he would die for our sins, and rise from the dead victorious over death, and he did it. He promised that he would give eternal life to his people, that he would save us from our sins, and he did it. And so we look at this history. I mean, do you want glowing testimonials about the faithfulness of God? This book is full of five-star reviews of how God has been faithful to his people over millennia. He's never failed. And it's harder when we're in situations where it feels like God is acting contrary to his promises. You know, it's harder for us when we're in these places where we think, I I know that God has said he's faithful. I know he's been faithful to other people. But in my circumstances right now, I don't, I just don't feel it. I don't believe, I don't have that conviction that he's going to be faithful to me. In those situations, we need to do the same thing. We need to look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus proves that no matter what your circumstances are right now, that God loves you. We don't always know how things are going to work out. If you were standing there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, you know, you're 
you know, you're Peter or you're James or you're, you're one of the disciples just standing there and you see Jesus on the cross, you would be thinking in that moment there is no way that God could ever do anything good with this. It's total failure. The one you've been following, the proclaimed Messiah, is now crucified and dead on a cross. And you would think, there is no way that God can do anything good with this. But the truth is that God was never doing anything better than what he was doing in that moment. And when we look to the cross, we see that God can and does bring the most beautiful and life-saving things out of what, at the time, feels like the most death-dealing, horrible experiences. And so when we can't believe that in whatever moment we're in, that God could ever bring any good out of it, we need to look at Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and say, God did the most wonderful thing in the world through the most evil thing in the world. In the most hopeless moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God brought resurrection. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, it gives us hope. Not wishful hope, but certain hope that God will do the same for us. Because Romans 8.34 says, 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the promise. That's not a promise for Noah. It's not a promise for Abraham or Isaac. That's a promise for you. A promise for you as a Christian that God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, gave the most price, priceless thing that he could, since he's given us that, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's what God has said. That's what God has promised. And faith says, I believe it. I believe it. And I'm going to live now like it's true. See, the secret to faith is not to look at ourselves, but to look at Christ, to fix our eyes on him, and to see the faithfulness of the Father. And when we do that, we can have faith. We can have that conviction that God will do what he has promised because he's already shown himself faithful by giving us his son. Let's pray. Father, we are all uh, weak in faith and our natural instinct is to try to, uh, I guess, condemn ourselves for our lack of faith and to then try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and become uh, more full of faith so that you'll be pleased with us. But the truth is it's not about us mustering up faith. You just want us to look at you. You are faithful. You have shown yourself faithful. You have given us a Savior. And you will give us along with him everything else that we need. Uh, so Lord, take our eyes off ourselves today, this week. Help us to look at Christ, to be inspired, um, inspired to live differently now, believing that what you've said is true. I pray now as we move into a time of communion that this intentional, focused time of looking at Jesus would also strengthen our faith and we'd be reminded of the wonderful gift that you've given us in him. In Jesus' name we pray.